You are listening to Community Radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, August 15th. It's 6 p.m. and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. I'm Claudio Mendoza. On this day one year ago, the United States began its withdrawal from Afghanistan while the Taliban entered Kabul, the country's capital, and took power. While some Afghans welcomed the new political leaders, many didn't, and thousands fled. Now, many of those Afghans are trying to build new lives here in the Golden State. The California Report has the details. National Native News will cover the fight for fair elections in South Dakota, and Al Stoller will talk to Dr. Edwin Lyman, Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists. This is the California Report. I'm Maddie Bolaños in San Francisco. Governor Gavin Newsom has a plan to extend the operation of California's last nuclear power plant. Diablo Canyon on the Central Coast is scheduled for closure by 2025. From KCBX, Benjamin Perper reports. Diablo Canyon produces about 9% of California's energy portfolio. The governor and nuclear advocates say energy shortages and the state's carbon neutrality goals mean it's too soon to take that much carbon-free energy off the grid. On Friday, Newsom revealed a draft proposal for a loan of up to $1.4 billion to the plant's operator, utility PG&E, to keep it running for 5 to 10 more years. That loan could be paid back if federal funds come through. Central Coast Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham agrees that Diablo Canyon should remain open. We simply are not where we thought we'd be with renewable energy production and coupling that with storage. And so it's put the state's grid in a rather precarious position. Carol Hisaswe is with Mothers for Peace, a San Luis Obispo County-based group pushing for the plant's decommissioning. The longer a nuclear power plant stays in operation, the greater the risk of an accident equipment failure or terrorist attack causing a release of radiation. PG&E maintains that the plant has a long record of safe operation going back to its first years of operation in the 1980s and that it's built to withstand natural disasters like earthquakes or tsunamis. The state legislature has until the end of this month to approve or reject the loan. And for the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Luis Obispo. For several years now, undocumented immigrants in California have been able to get a driver's license, which doubles as a critical piece of ID. But what about immigrants who don't drive? KPCC's Josie Hong says there's a push to get them an ID as well. A bill in Sacramento would make state-issued ID cards available to any Californian, regardless of their legal status. Backers say it's needed because the driver's license bill left out many people who don't drive, including some elderly people and people with disabilities, and a lot of women who are less likely to have access to a car, like Janet Martinez. Originally from El Salvador, she works as a pupusa vendor in L.A. She says she never tried to get a driver's license because she can't afford a car. Martinez says with a state ID, she could open a bank account, apply for health care services. I believe that we deserve to be able to be part of our communities, to contribute our whole hearts to our communities and be seen here. Immigrant advocates estimate more than a million people could benefit from the ID bill. It's passed out of the state assembly and is moving through the Senate. For the California Report, I'm Josie Huang. And in other news, a year ago today, the Taliban entered Kabul and the U.S. military began a frenzied airlift to evacuate tens of thousands of people out of Afghanistan. Now, many of those Afghans are trying to build new lives in California. But as KQED's immigration editor, Taiki Hendricks, reports, for those who arrived here with only a temporary immigration status, the future still feels very uncertain. 
Lotfullah Niaze is a civil engineer who worked for the U.S. military in Afghanistan. I reached him by phone as he was getting ready to cook dinner at his new apartment in Oakland. He tells me that last August, as his family tried to escape, in the crush at the Kabul airport, he got separated from his wife and five of his six children. In that time, I lost my wife, my kids. When I go inside the airport, my wife is not there. He was evacuated with just one son and a young cousin and ended up in the Bay Area where a refugee agency helped him find the apartment and a job as a security guard. But Niaze only works part-time because he needs to get the boys off to school and pick them up. Rent is expensive, so sometimes he borrows money from a cousin who settled here 30 years ago. As he navigates life in America, he talks to his wife every day. She and the kids are in hiding from the Taliban. Sometimes I became under pressure because my family is not here, but just one of my son is with me. Sometimes my son became sad because his mother is not here. If Niaze had refugee status, his wife and kids could join him. But he's one of nearly 77,000 Afghans who came on something called humanitarian parole. That's just temporary, good for two years. And it leaves him feeling stuck in limbo. It's very important for me because now uh, we don't know how can we live here. The refugee agency, Jewish Family and Community Services, has helped him apply for asylum so he can bring his family and get on a path to citizenship. He says he's ready to make his life in the United States because there's no way they can live under the Taliban. Uh, I want to make my career here, and we should be live here, and we die should be here because we don't want to go back to the Afghanistan. Fauzia Azizi, the Refugee Services Director at Jewish Family and Community Services, says her organization has hired legal staff to help nearly 500 parolees apply for some kind of permanent status. But it's a lot of extra work for overstretched refugee agencies. We created a strong group of pro bono, low bono lawyers and attorneys. However, uh, that's not the case for other programs and other organizations. She's hoping a bipartisan bill introduced in Congress last week could ease that burden. The Afghan Adjustment Act would grant permanent residence to Afghans like Niaze, who came on humanitarian parole. I'm so glad that at least it's moving and at least it's in front of Senate. I think that will bring a relief if that act will be passed. But Lotful and Niaze may not have to wait for Congress to act. He's going to his asylum interview in San Francisco on Wednesday. For The California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. And finally, workers at two Starbucks locations in Southern California have started a one-day strike this morning. Workers at the location in Lakewood in Los Angeles County and Barstow in San Bernardino County claim the company is participating in unfair labor practices. Employees at the first Starbucks store to unionize in California in Santa Cruz are also continuing their strike from this weekend. They say the company is refusing some benefits and changing store hours without consulting the union. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system on the web at chcf.org slash health equity. Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. And that's the California Report for Monday, August 15th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Marie Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. The chief judge for the U.S. District Court in South Dakota, Roberto Lang, has ordered Lyman County to work with the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe to implement a redistricting plan that allows for the election of tribal candidates to the county commission before this November. National Native News has more. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A federal judge has ordered Lyman County, South Dakota, to come up with a plan for the November elections. That gives the Lower Brule tribe a chance to elect its preferred county commissioner candidates. The tribe has been negotiating with the county to establish native-majority districts. The commission came up with a compromise but says it cannot comply until the 2024 elections because of time constraints. Federal District Judge Roberta Lang says that would leave a plan in place for 2022 that violates the Federal Voting Rights Act. Victoria Wicks reports. For 30 years, Lyman County has been one voting district with five at-large commissioners. That setup clearly violated the Federal Voting Rights Act because it diluted the vote of lower rural citizens, about 40 percent of the voting population. To rectify the federal violation, Lyman County decided to establish two voting districts, one of them containing a native majority and two commission seats. But county officials said they could not implement the new plan until 2024, and so Lower Brule filed a federal lawsuit to force the county to act in time for the November 2022 election. At a federal court hearing in late July, county officials testified that they needed to reconfigure software and verify addresses of native voters who use P.O. boxes or partial street addresses. But tribal manager Tim Azure testified that the Lower Brule Reservation contains primarily HUD housing, which has established addresses. In an exchange with Michael Cotter, one of the lawyers representing Lower Brule, Azure said the tribe has the ability to match 911 addresses to physical locations, but the county had not reached out to the tribe for help. The county has indicated that it may have a few hundred addresses to verify. How long would you expect it to take the tribe to verify that many addresses? I think it would probably take us eight to to 16 uh, hours. On August 11th, Judge Roberto Lang granted the tribe's request for a preliminary injunction and gave Lyman County commissioners seven days to come up with a remedial plan or have the court create one for them. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. The Canadian government has apologized to a Saskatchewan Cree nation for what's being described as an assimilation colony scheme. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister delivered the national apology on behalf of the federal government. The Papikis' Cree Nation was at the heart of a federal scheme that breached treaty agreements by setting up an experimental farm colony that took over the community's land and helped to assimilate indigenous people. It was called the File Hill Colonies Scheme. And between 1897 and 1954, participants in the colony were chosen for the experiment after graduating from residential schools and industrial schools. They were forced to work on the community farm and were not allowed to return to their home communities where they originally lived. Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller. At the time, Canada claimed wrongly that this scheme 
would enhance agricultural productivity, but we now understand that this was an experiment that was invasive in nature and an experiment in radical social engineering. And for this, we are deeply sorry. The apology was welcomed by the Papikas' chief and council. Many of the band members had been trying for years to get that apology, as well as compensation for the wrongs linked to the colony. The band accepted a $150 million settlement in August of last year, but many members are still searching for answers about their origins and identity issues. Miller says the government hopes the apology can help the process of healing. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB, who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. A fire is currently burning near Live Oak Road and Smothers Ravine Road close to Weimar in Placer County. Named the Oak Fire Incident by Cal Fire, the blaze was 15 acres and 0% contained as of 5.30 this afternoon. According to Ubanet.com, the blaze began as a commercial vehicle fire that spread into the adjacent wildland. The Placer County Sheriff's Office has issued mandatory evacuation orders for Live Oak, just east of Yankee Gyms, Grandview and Tree Farm, Black Bear Road, Maplewood, and Porcupine Ridge. KVMR will be following the fire. Turning now to regional weather, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight widespread haze before 3 a.m., then clear with a low around 67. On Tuesday, sunny and hot, with a high near 99. The AQI for Grass Valley and Nevada City is currently good at 4 and is expected to remain good tomorrow with an AQI of 49. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area, tonight, clear, with a low around 51. On Tuesday, there will be a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 11 a.m., otherwise sunny, with a high near 86. The AQI for Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area is 7, good, and will remain good tomorrow with a value of 44. In Sacramento, tonight will be clear with a low around 66. Tuesday will bring widespread haze and a high near 106. The AQI for Sacramento and the surrounding valley is currently 34, which is good, and is expected to continue in the good range tomorrow with an AQI of 34. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. We began our show with news from San Luis Obispo and the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. 
We're going to close our newscast with a conversation about the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant, one of the current flashpoints in the war in Ukraine. Al Stoller spoke with Dr. Edwin Lyman, Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, to learn more about the Soviet-built power plant. One of the ironies of nuclear power plants is you've got to plug them in. They depend on having power coming in to run the pumps, to run all sorts of systems. It would seem to be very easy to knock out the power coming in. Yes, you know, and you don't need a war to disrupt offsite power. You know, a hurricane or an earthquake will do that just as well. So nuclear plants are designed to have reliable backup power in case that happens. Zaporizhia has multiple emergency diesel generators, but there's always a risk of the diesel generator failing to start or eventually running out of fuel. So in that case, the site does have additional emergency equipment that could be brought to bear, but that gets to the question of how well are the personnel going to be able to function under those conditions. That's a big question. Fukushima, where the plant lost all its electrical power, there were attempts to circumvent that by directly injecting water into the cores with pumps that didn't require electricity, but that was not successful. So there are these vulnerabilities that any nuclear plant has that were not necessarily considered because they simply didn't expect the plant would be in the middle of an active military bombardment. Reactors are designed for seismic shock, earthquakes. What about kinetic impacts, kinetic energy, the energy of motion, getting hit? No nuclear power plant was designed for all the conditions that might be experienced in combat. These reactors, they do have fairly robust containment structures that are uh, reinforced concrete. Concrete walls four feet thick. With a uh, steel liner. And so they are designed to withstand natural events like winds that would turn a telephone pole into a missile. Think of a power pole flying through the air like a spear. You know, probably random shelling, you know, uh, impacts here and there are not going to necessarily significantly compromise the integrity of a plant, but certainly a sustained or repeated bombardment could overwhelm the design because it wasn't really meant for that. When the Russian army first captured the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, they let no one in or out. The same crew had to operate the plant 24-7. Worker stress, worker exhaustion, would have terrible effects on worker performance. I asked Lyman about that. That was certainly the case in the early days of the Russian takeover of the plant. After that, Ukraine did reach an arrangement with the Russian uh, military, and I believe that there were shift changes. However, in the last few days, I don't know what the situation is like as the shelling of the site and the surrounding areas intensified. It's not really clear at this point. At Zaporizhia, in case all the built-in safety features, emergency features, in case all that goes south, after Fukushima, they bought some fire engines that have their own pumps so that they could start pumping water through the reactor, through the spent fuel pool, using these fire engines. Portable means of injecting water into the reactors that don't require electrical power. But that equipment has to be in good working order. And there are other things that need to be done. Procedures, the operation of valves, Operating those valves itself requires electricity. Generally, yes. Um, and that, that was one of the problems they ran into in, at Fukushima, if you want to do that from the control room. 
So uh, some of them had to be manipulated manually. And in some cases, they were in areas where the radiation levels had already gotten so high that they couldn't be manually accessed. Those are the kinds of lessons uh, people have tried to absorb after Fukushima. Some of those lessons have been learned. Some of them haven't been learned so well. Coming out of World War II, Russian manufacturing capability was in shambles, which put a constraint on what they were able to build, which in turn led to some serious design compromises in their early reactors. I asked Lyman about more modern Russian designs, such as the six VVER-1000s at Zaporizhia. Do you have any concerns about the Russian design of this reactor? The um, design is similar in a lot of respects to Western design light water reactors. So I think fundamentally there aren't too many, you know, kind of gross design concerns with the VVR-1000 compared to earlier models of the uh, Russian light water reactor like the VVR-440, of which there are some at other uh, sites in Ukraine. I don't think the design itself poses unusual vulnerabilities compared to uh, Western design. Ed, this has been very helpful and very interesting. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Dr. Edwin Lyman, Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. And with that, we close our newscast for Monday, August 15th. KVMR is supported by Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com and Ubadox Urgent Care since 2000, providing walk-in medical and urgent care accepting most insurance. Open 8 to 6, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, Saturdays and holidays. Located in the Fowler Center, Grass Valley, ubidox.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting independent local media. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a great evening, and we'll see you tomorrow.